there. It's the 12th episode of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your pretty and perky host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. This episode will cover first season episodes, episode 22, Not That Much Different, and episode 23, Six Kilos. That's right. We are almost done with season one. Can you believe it? Can you imagine? Who would have thought, right? Certainly not I. I would have thought laziness would have gotten the best of me by now. Anyway, let's go to Hawaii. Say my word, you've saved yours. No, young man, I'm not afraid of you and your friends. What surprises me is the fear you have of my coming to Hawaii. Not to Hawaii, General. We know you're going to the mainland to negotiate for arms. To make war. To destroy blindly rather than try to find some reasonable road towards peace. To kill. Let me speak. We fight and kill only the ones who would take away the freedom we fought all these years. You've been using that excuse for centuries, General. And bloodshed hasn't gotten us anywhere. Episode 22, Not That Much Different. Air date March 5th, 1969. Directed by Abner Biberman. This is the second of five for him. And written by Mark Rogers. This is the second of three for him. A group of peace protesters confront a visiting general being escorted by McGarrett. They accuse him of going to the mainland to buy weapons, which offends them deeply as they are all about peace. When Julian, the leader of the group, tries to give the general a copy of Peace magazine, a shot rings out. The general is hustled away to a car, but Julian lies dead. At 5.0, Steve questions the peace group using blow-ups of pictures of the protest and meeting to have them verify where they were standing and what they saw. Two of the members, Ned and Manning, were out of shot, selling their magazine. One picture shows an odd shadow, but no one in the group claims to have seen it. They're not exactly excited to be there, as they are so dedicated to peace that they see anyone who carries a gun as an enemy of their cause. Steve assures them that he abhors violence, but the reality of the world is that there are bad, violent people in it, and it's his job to protect people from them. Despite what they think, he wants peace too. Later on, Steve is strumming on a guitar in his office when Dano comes in, bringing him a sandwich and a lead, Lanny Devereaux. It seems that she and Julian were nearly asphyxiated once three years ago. The speculation was that she turned on the gas while he was asleep, trying to kill them both, but there was no proof. 
Lenny also had a gun, a 38 Special, which was the same kind that killed Julian. Just then, a call comes in from a, an anonymous man trying to disguise his voice. He asks th about the investigation and then tells them that things aren't what they seem. Steve checks in at Peace Magazine and talks to Ned and Manning. He asks them what they know about Lanny since she owned a gun that was like the one that killed Julian. Ned and Manning don't believe that anyone but the general was the target. Everyone liked Julian. Steve tells them that no one is that well-liked. Kono finds Lanny and stakes out her house where Danny and Chin Ho join him. She's shacked up with a guy named Collins who's wanted on the mainland for armed robbery and murder. When the trio moves in on the house, there's a shootout and Collins is killed. But at least they have Lanny unharmed. At Peace Magazine, Ned catches Manning breaking into a drawer of Julian's. He claims that he's looking for glue, but Ned knows better. The group is conducting their own investigation into Julian's murder, and Ned shows Manning the letter that Manning had written to Julian, which Ned had already found. It could be considered incriminating. Manning maintains that he loved Julian, and it was Ned who hated him. Ned says their arguments over the paper were just differing viewpoints. Manning asks what his viewpoint was when Julian was in the line of fire. Steve talks to Lanny. She doesn't know what happened to her gun, but she thinks Julian took it because he didn't want her to have it. The night they were gassed, which she maintains was attempted murder by someone else, Julian argued with someone from the magazine on the phone. She also admits to seeing Julian a few days before he was killed when he ended things for good between them. Steve is sure that Lanny isn't the killer. Danny and Chin Ho go talk to Ned and ask him about the 38 Julian supposedly had. Ned doesn't know anything but his rights. Meanwhile, the group led by Manning and Paul break into Ned's locker and finds a gun like the one that killed Julian, and they speculate why Ned would have it since they all hate guns. Manning insists on confronting Ned, but Jackie and Carol want to call McGarrett. Manning talks them into it, and the group confronts him in an empty auditorium as he works on scenery for a show. When Ned asks what's going on, Manning tells him that they're putting him on trial. And in a moment, some vague allusions to that trial because I don't want to spoil things too much for you. This is kind of an unexpected episode in the sense that when it starts, you've, you think the focus is actually going to be more on the general than the peace protesters. You think the peace protest is just a way for someone to get at the general. And you think what they're going to be investigating is an attempted assassination and that they're going to be protecting this general and there will be more attempts on his life. When in actuality, the focus is on the peace pro protesters. It's on the group. And this was done in 1969. So yeah... Peace protesting, war protesting was ramping up, especially with the hippie movement and everything, and, and especially on college campuses and stuff. It was very common to see. And depiction of those protesters in on television usually isn't very nice. They're usually portrayed as very aggressive, ignorant, almost naive in a way, especially if they're protesting against war, or they're protesting for peace, or they're protesting against police brutality or whatever. They're just seen as clueless, like... They don't, they don't understand how the world works. And you do get a little bit of that here. They are kind of aggressive and they are kind of um, unpleasant and uncooperative to a certain extent. They clearly don't want to be in, in the 5-0 office answering questions because they see McGarrett as much of an enemy of their movement as anyone else that carries a weapon, good or bad. But this group does get a little more empathy to its treatment in that they aren't completely uncooperative. They don't make any bones about the fact that they don't like being there and they don't like being questioned, but they do try to be helpful. They do answer the questions that they are asked and they have a little bit of an attitude 
varying ranges. Jackie has quite a bit of an attitude. She's like my favorite girl of the group. I love her. She is so cute. She wears the cutest little dresses and she wears this. They were, we had them when I was a kid too, but they're just, they're ribbons that you can put in your hair, but they were yarn and she wears those and I love it. I love her. She's adorable. Anyway, she's got quite a bit of an attitude. So does Manning. So does Ned. So does Paul. Carol is a little more empathetic towards the police. She still agrees with everything that the group says, but she as she says, we they didn't have to be that rough on McGarrett when they're in the office confronting him and saying that he's just as bad as everybody else, which he does defend himself on that point. If you think of anything you might have overlooked, let me know. We might as well tell it to you like it is, Mr. McGarrett. You're bringing us down here, asking for our help. It makes us sick. Why, Jackie? Why does it make you sick? A man has been murdered. In our book, Mr. McGarrett, you're no better than the man who fired at the general and killed Julian. I don't understand your logic. You carry a gun. Anyone who carries a gun believes in killing. You are armed. Therefore, you are prepared to kill. finished. Look, I don't feel any need to defend my position or my profession, but I'd like to mention a few names. John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and before them, Mahatma Gandhi. Did you ever hear them? There are dangerous animals in the world, and some of them walk on two feet. They don't want peace, and they're not capable of love. Society, and that means you and you and you and you need protection from these warped minds, and that's my job. Now, you have every right to sing about peace and march about it and write about it. But what I just told you is the way it is, unfortunately. That's why we're armed. And it seems that early on, Stephen Fivo figured Julian to be the target. So I think there's some investigation happening here that we weren't privy to. Because we go from that scene to, I guess, emphasizing that Steve has got a bit of a hippie streak in him. He's sitting in his office playing a guitar, and it is quite beautiful. He's quite good at it. I enjoyed it. And Danny comes in with a sandwich and a lead saying, well, Lanny Mae Devereaux was a girl that Julian saw on occasion. They had an off-again, on-again relationship. And they were nearly gassed in her house. And they think she did it, but they don't have any proof of that. But she also owned a weapon that matched the kind that killed Julian. And they pursue that lead. So it's kind of interesting that they they never ruled out that Julian might have been the target. That the obvious play would be that he was killed accidentally when someone was trying to kill the general. But Steve, being Steve McGarrett, doesn't rule out the possibility that Julian was the target. And when he takes that information to Ned and Manning at the paper, which the paper setup is like, it's set up at a print shop. So this is old school. This isn't like what you have now where they're running all of these ink machines and and lettering stuff by hand and all of this stuff. It's a very involved setup, which looks really impressive for a bunch of college kids, especially since they sell their magazine for 10 cents. Who finances this? 
Because even at ten cents a magazine, they have to be selling a lot of magazines, or somebody is footing the bill for all of this. Anyway, Steve goes to talk to Ned and Manning, and when Steve tells them he is looking for Lanny Mae Devereaux because she had a gun similar to what killed Julian, and he believes Julian's a target, they just can't believe it because everybody liked Julian. They think the general was the target, or they maintain that the general was the target. And it's great. Steve has a great line with that. I don't see what you're driving at, Mr. McGarrett. Julian was killed by a shot fired at the general. Now, what does all this have to do? Oh, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that that someone deliberately shot at Julian? No chance. Everybody loves Julian. Everybody. Lesson one. Nobody is loved by everybody. And he's not wrong. But he also asks Paul again if Paul saw anything. Paul's the tall guy with the beard, and he maintains that he didn't. Now, this is important because we had seen an anonymous call come in from probably a phone booth. You never see the caller's face. You just see, like, the mouth and the fact that he's covering the phone with a handkerchief. You know it's male. You know it's a guy. And if you are paying attention at all, to this episode, you will know that the anonymous caller is Paul. But 5-0 hasn't figured that out yet. So on his own, Paul is willing to make anonymous calls to try to direct 5-0 to look deeper. But in public, when his face is seen, when he's with his friends, he maintains he didn't see anything unusual. Which, of course, we will eventually find out is a lie. So through the help of one of Chin Ho's many cousins, Kono tracks down Lanny Devereaux and meets up with Dano and Chin Ho outside of her house. Lanny May Devereaux. Positive identification? One of Chin's cousins at the Kalawai bar. Makaha Kelly. Bullseye. Kono finds out that she's there with a guy named Collins who's in trouble on the mainland. Danny's the one that calls in to ask what he's in trouble for. It comes back with armed robbery and murder. So that gives them their legal authority to go in the house, which they do. And Collins shoots them, so they shoot back. And unfortunately end up killing Collins, but they have Lanny Mae there unharmed. And she is wearing the most magnificent yellow and green floral shift dress. The pattern is beautiful. It looks like it should be wallpaper in the Brady's house. It is just fabulous. I love it. It's too hideous to actually be ugly. You can't help but admire it. She also has some magnificent eye makeup going on at the same time, which kind of clashes with her dress, but not really. It's just, she's a vision. Anyway, when Steve questions her about what happened, he asks her about the gun, which she doesn't know what happened to it. She said Julian took it away from her. She she doesn't know what he did with it and admits that she saw him a few nights ago when he ended things. So she, she has a motive. But when she tells him about the uh, attempt on their life three years prior when they were nearly asphyxiated by the gas, she says that somebody else did it and that and that the night that it happened, Julian had argued with someone from the magazine. And Steve asks her who, and she goes, I don't know, but they were quarreling about the magazine, so it had to be someone from the magazine. So that kind of turns Steve back towards the peace group because he doesn't believe Lanny did it. But it was basically just, she was, she had hooked up with Collins. When she found out about Julian being murdered, she went into hiding because she knew that the cops would be after her to ask her questions or figured they would be. And so he buys her story 
and doesn't think it's her. And of course he's right because he's Steve McGarrett and he has super detective senses. So the focus is shifted to the magazine. I don't think the focus really ever left the magazine entirely. But So we see Manning breaking into Julian's desk drawer and Ned catching him. Actually, I was looking for some possible evidence that might help us in our investigation. Manning had been thinking about that. Last night we agreed to hold our own investigation to see if possibly one of us could have killed Julian. Well, it is possible, you know. And if so, we'd turn him over to McGarrett without the publicity of a police hunt. And then no one would think we were fanatics or commies or wild-eyed kids who didn't know what they were doing. Now, you don't want to find the killer, is that it? Why? You afraid again, that old buddy? The only thing I'm afraid of is that we're not qualified to sit in judgment. Oh, nonsense. You were afraid when we started the marches. Afraid when we started approaching powerful people and defying them. It's always easier for you behind your typewriter. It's always easier for you not to act. That's not true when you know it, isn't it? When were you brave for once? All right. Let's do some investigating. I think you were looking for evidence in Julian's library. I think you were looking for this letter you wrote to Julian. You... You read it? I'm sorry, I did. I was going through his papers to see if he left us any unfinished business. isn't evidence of much except my affection for him. And that you challenged his leadership. Every organization needs somebody to spur them on. I wanted to help him. We all wanted to help him. I wanted to help him. You hated Julian. I loved him. But he didn't love you. Oh, no, that's not true. It was you who fought with him constantly. Didn't you? Answer the question, Ned. We argued over goals for the magazine. A difference of viewpoints. Oh, yeah. Go on. What was your viewpoint when Julian stepped towards the general to hand him a copy of the magazine into the line of fire? Now, the interesting thing about this scene, first of all, it's kind of implied, or maybe this is just how I'm picking up on it, but it's kind of implied that when Manning is talking about loving Julian, it's not necessarily in a platonic sense. Just by the way he acts about the letter, the way Ned kind of acts about the letter because he read it, and the way Manning handles the letter, it's definitely a scene you have to watch and pay attention to. Sound clips just won't do it justice. But there's this implication, like a very subtle implication, I think that maybe perhaps everything in that letter wasn't entirely platonic. Which is an interesting twist because Ned doesn't act revolted or anything like that. He's just like, it's kind of come across as an I know sort of thing. But Manning very quickly turns it back to Ned saying how much he hated Julian. But it's an interesting way to see that scene play out because basically what that scene is setting it up as, it's narrowing down our suspects for us. 
because it's giving us motive for both Ned and Manning. And up to this point, neither one of them really comes across as very likable. So you could go either way with either one of them being the killer. Neither one of them were in any of the pictures that Steve had in the office. They both were, I think, across the street. They were outside of the police line. So they could have easily shot at Julian from where they were. So at that point, it could be either of them. But when Danny and Chin Ho go to talk to Ned, and he's rather combative, and he, not really combative, I guess, but he, he's definitely not very cooperative. He denies that Julian ever had a gun. Julian wouldn't have guns because Julian was against guns and won't answer any more questions without a lawyer, which, good job. It does look like perhaps that maybe the needle towards guilt kind of leans towards Ned. And then we see the rest of the peace group find the gun in Ned's locker, which Manning and Paul force open with a crowbar and they find it in there. And it kind of like puts the needle more firmly towards that. And then we have the trial, which Manning insists upon. Because one interesting thing about this is that even though the group is conducting their own investigation into Julian's murder, even though the group doesn't like guns, doesn't like the police because they carry guns, not a big fan of McGarrett, still, when they find the gun in Ned's locker, both Carol and Jackie are like, we need to turn this over to McGarrett. The first thing they think is we need to get this to the authorities. They maintain they don't have the ability to judge evidence or judge whether or not someone is innocent or guilty, but Manning talks them into having this trial, which is the most dramatic thing ever because Ned has been working on scenery pieces for some show that they're supposed to do. So he's up on the stage painting. They turn off the lights or the lights and I know the lights in the audience are down. And so they file in very quietly and take their seats and then they turn on the spotlight so it kind of blinds Ned. He doesn't know who's out in the audience. And Manning comes in from the wing and and explains that they're going to put him on trial because they think he killed Julian. And what's really interesting is you watch how this trial progresses and you start getting an idea because Ned has motive and he admits that he has motive because Julian was kicking him out of the group. But you also get another sense that Manning could have done it and Manning could possibly be framing Ned because of the way that Manning conducts this trial. So, and you also get this this nice thing that this is not a as much as this group is very much about one thing, it's about peace. They're not sheep. They go at least, a, a, not entirely sheep. They go along with Manning to a point, but then Carol and Jackie both call him out and demand that the trial be stopped and that they turn Ned over to McGarrett. So they're not entirely devoid of their own thought. Usually when, when they portray groups like this, it's very hive mind and there's not a whole lot of individual personalities. Their personalities are built off of the same goal. Where in this case, there's actually quite a few differing personalities here and they don't have necessarily have a, a total commitment to groupthink. It's not completely hive mind. So that's interesting to see. So while the trial is enlightening, there is an verdict. It's what happens after the trial that leads us to the conclusion of the episode, which is actually quite good. It features a great gunfight and chase on this beautiful like seaside cliff area that it's just gorgeous because you have the cliffs and it's very windy and you have the the waves crashing and 
Okay, I was admiring the scenery quite a bit, but the, but the actual chase and, and shootout is actually quite tense. It goes on for a little while, but it's never boring. You're like, you're just waiting for Steve to catch the bad guy because that's what Steve does and see how this comes to a conclusion, which the ending is actually quite good. It's quite satisfying. And it's also kind of funny to know that if they hadn't had this trial, it's possible that the killer might not have been caught. So let's take a look at the guest cast, which is actually kind of light on overly familiar faces as opposed to the last few episodes we've done. Manning West was played by Dennis Cooney. He was also in The Flying Nun, I Dream of Jeannie, Ironside, and The Virginian. He showed up in the movie Fitzwilly with Dick Van Dyke and Barbara Feldon. And he was in the TV movies The Magnificent Yankee and Soul Survivor with Vince Edwards, William Shatner, and Richard Basehart. Ned Horvath was played by Stuart Moss. He was Judge Titus on The Soap Opera Generations. He was also Dr. Elliot Baines on Faye, a short-lived TV show with Lee Grant. He did eight episodes of Hogan's Heroes, all as different characters. He also turned up in The Fugitive, Rawhide, Perry Mason, The New Perry Mason, Bonanza, Star Trek, Mannix, Kojak, Cannon, Rockford Files, Black Sheep Squadron, Chapper, John, M.D., Magna P.I., Cagney and Lacey, Three's a Crowd, Riptide, Matlock, and Murder, She Wrote. He was in the movies In Harm's Way, Pendulum with George Pappard, Fuzz, Dr. Death's Seeker of Souls, The Bat People, and Raise the Titanic. He was also in the TV movies Live Again, Die Again, Conspiracy of Terror, The Last Hurrah, Dan August, Murder My Friend, Gunsmoke, The Long Ride, and Bonanza The Return. Carol Matthews was played by Jadine Vaughn. She was also in The Virginian and in the movies A Covenant with Death and Funny Lady. Paul Brechtman was played by Lee Paul. We'll see him in one more episode. He also showed up in Mission Impossible, The Rookies, Get Christy Love, Canon, Adam 12, Emergency, Ironside, including the Amy Prentice backdoor pilot, SWAT, Happy Days, Wonder Woman, Chips, Quincy, BJ and the Bear, Fantasy Island, The Fall Guy, and Matlock. He was in the movies Ben, The Sting, The Island at the Top of the World, Deadly Friend, and Survival Game. And he was in the TV movies Desperado, Avalanche at Devil's Ridge, The Children of Unlock, the Golden Gate Murders, Scream at the Wolf, The Gambler, and Kenny Rogers as The Gambler, The Adventure continues. Lanny Devereaux was played by Anne Prentice. She was Sergeant Candy Kane on Captain Nice, and she was also the voice of Jean on Quark. She also turned up in Bewitched, Mannix, Get Smart, Hogan's Heroes, The Virginian, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Bonanza, Search, Emergency, Starsky and Hutch, and Masquerade. She was in the movies My Stepmother is an Alien, California Split, The Out-of-Towners, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, and Ash Wednesday. And she was in the TV movies In Name Only and Philip and Barbara with John Aston and Patty Duke. My beloved little Jackie Ito was played by Linda Ansai. This is her only credit. Julian Scott was played by Sperry McNaughton, which is an amazingly preppy name. We'll see him in one more episode. Hansen was played by Tim Tindall. This is his second of five episodes. We already saw him in Tiger by the Tail. George was played by Chuck Couch. We'll see him in 16 more episodes. He also showed up in Bat Masterson, Have Gun Will Travel, Burke's Law, Honey West, The Girl from Uncle, 
He has several uncredited henchmen and thug roles, as well as 38 stunt credits, including 17 for Hawaii Five-0. He also showed up as John Aston's stunt double on Batman, and he was the stunt coordinator on the TV movie She's Dressed to Kill and the movies Death Wish 2 and Witchboard. And the general was played by Walter P. Young Sr. We'll see him in five more episodes. And that is not that much different. It's a solid episode. It's one that I forget about and don't necessarily consider one of my go-tos when I want to watch Hawaii Five-0. But it's not a bad episode. It's actually quite good. We get a little more Chin Ho and Kono action than we've had in episodes leading up to this. We get Steve playing the guitar. We get Danny leading the charge into a shootout. So it's definitely not a dull episode. And it's not a bad episode. It's it's quite good. It's just one that I don't think of and it's not one of my go-tos. What I'm trying to say is that you would be better off if you gave it a watch. Episode 23, 6 Kilos, air date March 12th, 1969, directed by Seymour Robbie. This is number four of four for him. And written by Meyer Dolinsky. This is the first of six for him. Danny Kono and Chin Ho are staking out the airport following a guy named Harry Brown. He picks up a key and then heads to the airport lockers where he retrieves a briefcase. When Chin Ho tries to arrest him, he fights back, knocking Chin down and pulling a gun, forcing Danny to shoot him. Inside the case is a lot of money and a reservation for the Mauna Loa Hotel. At the office, Dano quizzes Steve on Harry Brown, which is actually an alias for one of the best safecrackers in the world. The money wasn't marked, the reservation was made by Cablegram, and there's no word on the street as to why he's here. Five-O needs to find out what's going on. So that means... Steve goes undercover as Harry Brown, arriving at the hotel and checking in as him. 
He finds a bug in his room and then answers a knock on the door where he's greeted by Swanson holding a gun. He frisks Steve and looks for an identifying tattoo, which Steve now sports. Swanson asks why Steve was late, and he says he had drinks with a friend. When Swanson demands the friend's address, Steve says it's in his bag. That's enough of a distraction for Steve to disarm Swanson and ask his own questions. Steve demands to talk to the man in charge of this caper, but Swanson tells him that communication only goes one way, and no one knows who the man is. They end up going to a beach house where Steve meets the other members of the team, Andre and Margie. He then hears a message played on a tape from the man warning Steve that he knows what happened in the hotel room and he's to stay at the beach house and behave, or else. Under the guise of fishing, Dano does some surveillance on the house, taking pictures of the people there. Meanwhile, Steve is pestering the rest of the team about the man. Swanson is an electrician, Andre is a tool expert, and Margie works for Kwong Ling, a diplomat, and that is her cover. Steve doesn't like not knowing who the man is, but the payoff is $1 million split four ways, and Steve, as Harry, does like that. Dano briefs the governor on the case. The beach house is being rented by a man named Tagati, but they can't find much information about him or Swanson or Andre. They do know who Margie is, and more importantly, they know her boss, who has diplomatic immunity should he somehow be involved. Swanson catches Steve looking through an envelope, and when Swanson tries to stop him, they fight about it until Andre and Margie break them up. Turns out that the envelope is for all of them, another message from the man. The heist is going to be on a ship, and according to the taped message, it's Kwong Ling's ship. The group is to make their necessary purchases for the heist and then get back to the house. Steve takes the opportunity to meet up with Kono, posing as a taxi driver, and Danny at a tennis match, and fill them in. Danny warns him that Kwong Ling's ship has an army on it. Steve meets up with a nitro guy, he is supposed to be a safecracker after all, and nearly has his cover blown by an acquaintance who recognizes him. But with Steve holding the nitro, his armed dealer has no choice but to run and is taken out by Kono. Cover maintained, Steve goes back to the house and tries to ooze some charm on Margie, still looking for info on the team and the man. The group receives their final taped instructions. They have to get three celluloid cylinders, each weighing two kilos, from a safe. They speculate on what could be in the cylinders until Steve hits the nail on the head. At 11 o'clock that night, they'll be stealing $40 million worth of heroin. That's their six kilos. So if you listen to the episode in which Dan and I discussed the box, I mentioned that this episode ties into the box in that we see Swanson again, again played by Gerald S. Laughlin. His name in the box is Charlie Swanson, but here it's Carl Swanson, but there in the box there's this implied relationship that he's had with Steve because Steve put him away. So in theory, this is the episode which kind of precludes that. This is how Steve meets Swanson and how Swanson ends up going to jail. Now, the characterization of Swanson is quite consistent with what we saw in the box. He and Steve have a rather combative relationship, even though Steve is undercover, which I will talk about in a minute because I love Steve undercover. But there's also this implication, at least in the box, that Swanson was something of a career criminal, that he was a known thief. Whereas in this episode, he's a master electrician, which figures into how they're going to do the heist. But According to Dano, they can't find any information. Washington doesn't have any information on anyone in the team, including Swanson. So it's kind of interesting that perhaps that he suddenly turned to crime here or that he just wasn't ever caught. 
that he wasn't known is a possibility and that this is the, the case that finally sent him up. But there was this implication, though, that, that at least in the box, that this isn't the first time Swanson went to jail. But in this episode, since they can't find any information on him, it implies that this is his first big score. So I don't know. The consistency there is, is questionable, but considering that we're also airing, th- these episodes also playing out of order, who knows? And I say out of order by meaning that this was obviously supposed to be prior to the box episode, not that they were filmed out of order. I don't know. Again, I probably should have looked it up to see if I could find any kind of production schedule, but you are underestimating my laziness. So anyway, Harry Brown, the boxman, is killed when Chin Ho confronts him at the airport. And in order to find out why he's there, Steve has to go undercover. I love Steve undercover. But because we saw Steve undercover before in The Ways of Love. And he was a very verbose, over-the-top, jazzy kind of fellow. In this episode, he's not quite as... he's not His personality isn't quite as flamboyant. He's supposed to be kind of a loud, obnoxious guy. He's a womanizer, and he does exhibit that. He's very combative with Swanson. They have some great back and forth, and he does hit on Margie all of the time, and he's really kind of, like, insulting to Swanson and Andre because he calls Andre Frenchie, and he calls Swanson genius, which is obviously implied ironically, and I think he only calls Margie baby throughout the whole thing. So he does adopt a certain kind of character that's a little toned down compared to what we saw before, But what he lacks in over-the-top personality, he makes up for in fashion. My God, it is amazing. He, it is nothing but incredibly vibrant Aloha shirts, ascots, and white pants and white shoes. It is a magnificent wardrobe. There will be pictures up on the blog because I do have several from this episode because I was just so enamored with Steve and his undercover wardrobe to the point that because obviously this takes place over a couple of days, he actually does a wardrobe change in the middle of the day. They have to, they get their message. He's wearing one shirt when they get their message that the heist is going to be that night. They need to go get their supplies. He changes his shirt before they leave the house to go shopping. I'm not kidding you. It's just magnificent. Truly, it is a vision, an absolute vision. And I could go on about that, but I'm not going to because we have two other members of our team that end up going undercover. Danny goes undercover, sort of. He's pretending to go fishing so he can get pictures of the people at the beach house, which they're impressive pictures considering the distance he's at and the camera he has and that this is 1969. And what we see is the resulting photographs of that. Pretty impressive. Paparazzi would be jealous, I think. And then later, Kono is undercover as a taxi driver. In both cases, they're rather subdued because they're trying to blend in, whereas Steve is definitely trying to to stand out. It's also worth mentioning that when he first meets Swanson in the hotel room and they have their back and forth, one of the identifying marks that Swanson looks for to make sure that Steve is Harry Brown is a really god-awful forearm tattoo. And when I say god-awful, I mean it looks like a fifth grader drew it. Like, this was their idea of a super cool tattoo because it's the outline of a woman in a champagne glass and with the name, I think, Cindy underneath of it. So it's quite classic, I got this in a back room somewhere tattoo. And it's red. It's not even green or blue. It's red. So it's a bright red, poorly outlined tattoo of a woman in a champagne glass. 
I'm guessing that they had someone draw that on Steve, and I hope that it lasted for the whole undercover operation. But it is just hideous. It's god-awful, and it looks like it probably got infected at some point. So Steve embeds himself with this this team for this heist, and he's constantly prodding about who the man is. He really wants to know, obviously, who's in charge of this caper, because what's interesting is that the way the it's implied about how this was set up is that the man, the person in charge, contacted each of them individually, made the pitch, and paid them $20,000 in advance to come out here and do this heist. The understanding is, is that Harry is the only criminal among them because nobody else seems to have records that the FBI can find, the local law enforcement can find. So I'm kind of curious how at least it was a pro- it was broached to to Swanson and Andre and Margie how they would how this how they got in on this. How do they get this message about, hey, do you want in on this? Do you want to make this big payday? How it got them to turn. Because Swanson is a master electrician. Andre is known for tools and x-ray, I think is what they said. And then Margie, of course, works for the diplomat. And that's who they end up robbing. So the question is, is are they all like average citizens that they just happen to get this this offer? Or is it that they've never been caught? And if they've never been caught, that's also something that you kind of wonder is like, well, how did the man know about this? So there is a bit of a plot hole in the fact that of the four, like Harry is the only one you can see obviously that the man would try to get a hold of would be, would be known since everybody else they can't find any information on. But you kind of overlook it because the way the plot unfolds, the plot for this heist, the way the, the man communicates and keeps them in the dark is actually quite interesting. So when Steve gets to the house, there's a recording waiting for him there, warning him to behave himself because the man knows what happened with Swanson in the hotel room. While this is specifically for your ears, Mr. Brown, it'll do no harm to let the others hear also. I want you to know that I've been privy to everything that happened in your room at the Mauna Loa between you and Swanson. I have all the facts that you gave as to why you were late and what you have been doing. I am going to check them out. Meanwhile, let me tell you this. Until further notice, you're to stay there at the beach house with the others. I'm paying for a box man, not a lover. For the next week, I own you. If you should step out of line again, you're a dead man. So it's a great introduction to the man and how the man communicates, but also lets us know that the man has eyes on everybody. And that's how they get most of their information. So even they aren't sure what the heist is until they get the plans for the ship. They don't know what they're heisting until they get the message. And even then, all they know is the cylinder. They're just going to take these celluloid cylinders. They don't even know what's in them. So the way it kind of pieces together that they're kept in the dark as well as we are and how they have to go about preparing themselves for this heist is actually quite interesting. Now, if you watch the episode and you listen to the voice in the tape, it's obviously distorted and that actually comes to a head at the end of the episode. They actually show you how it's distorted so you can understand, you figure out who it is. But you kind of can figure out who it is before if you're really paying attention. But it's not that big of a spoiler. When you're watching the episode, I'm not going to spoil it. But when you're watching the episode, it's not that big of a spoiler. Because now it's just a matter of figuring out how this is all going to come together and how it's all going to go down. Because we know this, that Steve is, is going to get his man. 
So the day of the heist, it's revealed that they're going to be stealing from Kuang Ling, who is Margie's boss. So now we have a better understanding of how Margie plays into all this because Steve is really baffled about why she's here. Because she asks her, how do you fit into all of this? And she goes, just let's just say I fit in. But even she is doesn't apparently know that they're robbing her boss until she gets the message. So she, her position is clarified. So obviously she's going to be the way they, the, the person, the inside person that gets them on the ship. So they get this information and they get told, okay, go off and, and get what you need to get in order to complete the heist tonight and come back for your, wait for your instructions, your next instructions. So Steve uses the opportunity to go meet up with Kono and Danny. He explains everything to, to Kono in the taxi on the way over to a tennis match, which it's, it looks very competitive. Uh, and there's a crowd and that's where Danny is. And that's where he sits and talks to, to Danny. Anything from Washington? Drawing a blank all up and down the line. A brief cone on what I know. The hit's going to be on Quan Ling's yacht. That'll be quite a job. What do you mean? Made a routine check when we learned the girl's identity. Quan Ling's got a private army on board that thing standing watch around the clock. Well, who's ever behind this caper has a way figured you can bet on that. What's your next move? I've got to make a contact and be back at the house by two. Contact with whom? I haven't been told. There's only one possible answer. Like what? A nitro man. You don't know where, how, or who. How do you make a contact? I got a sealed envelope with a lighter in it. That's the only clue. What can we do to help? Just keep those cards and letters coming in, buddy. And it's actually quite clever because he goes to the Mono, back to the Mauna Loa Hotel and a guy sees him comes over and says, hey, do you have a light? And he's like, yeah, right here. And he takes the lighter out. And they end up moving down the path a little bit away from everybody. And he lights the guy's cigarette. And the guy's like, that's a nice lighter. And he goes, would you? Would it mean anything to you if I said I got it from Brown's? And so that's how the Nitro guy knows that Steve is Harry Brown and that he's supposed to give the Nitro to him. And the Nitro is concealed in like a, a wide leather wristband. That was quite popular. Usually it had a watch on it, but this one's plain and we saw a resurgence of those in the 90s. I, ha- I still have mine. Anyway, the, the nitro is concealed underneath there and the nitro guy gives him the, the band with the nitro and before they can complete the transaction, Steve has the nitro, but he hasn't put it on yet. A guy comes up, Brad, and out Steve as being Steve and not Harry. The nitro guy pulls again and... Steve informs him, you know, it's probably not your best move to shoot me as I am holding volatile explosive liquids in this capsule. And so the nitro guy runs for it and Kono comes out of nowhere and takes him out. It's beautiful. It makes you happy. It makes my heart happy to see that. I don't know why, but I was amused. And then Brad the Doof apologizes. He's like, man, I should have I should have known better. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, why would you think that it wasn't just Steve hanging out because he's dressed in this fabulous Aloha shirt and this beautiful ascot? Why would you think it, he was undercover? You wouldn't know. So it's not your fault, Brad, but you are still kind of a doof. Anyway, Steve ends up going back to the beach house and once again ends up schmoozing with Margie. To you, baby. I like your style, Harry K. Brown. Would you rather that I called you by your real name? Forget it, baby. You're not afraid of me. No, it's just business. Tomorrow, next week, one of us might get tagged. 
less we know about each other, the better. Somewhere in this world, people trust people. What do you trust? I could trust you, if you'd let me. Sure. Why not? What do you want to know? Who the man is? I don't know. You don't know, or you're not saying? You really don't trust people, do you? It's not that. It's just that I can't figure you an honest keeper. <laughs> do you mean what is a nice girl like me doing on a job like this? Something like that. Well, I'll tell you. This nice little girl has finally got a big one. No more small deals, no more dives. From now on, it's Cannes, Portofino, Saint-Tropez. Here I come. Have you ever thought that sometimes this world can be harder on a woman than a man? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Underneath what we grow up to be, I suppose there's just a little girl in all of us looking out, wondering why people turn into such frightening, misshapen monsters. And then one day you look and you're one of those people. You're one of those frightening, misshapen monsters. Crowding, destroying, doing anything to stay alive. Maybe. We were talking moonlight and orchids, remember? You don't dig what I was talking about at all, do you? Harry, you don't dig it at all. Maybe not. But I dig you, baby. I dig you. Now, I know he's trying to get some information from her if she knows anything about the man, but the conversation that they end up having is kind of like walking a wire a little bit. Because he's trying to figure something out about her as well. How? Because he still isn't convinced of how she figures in on this. So I don't know if maybe Steve doesn't suspect her from knowing more about who the man is or what's going on. Or if Steve is genuinely interested in her because he finds her fascinating. There's kind of hints of that that happen later in the episode. So I don't know. But it makes for an interesting scene, I think. So they get their final instructions about the heist that's happening at 11 o'clock that night. They have to break into this safe. They only have so much time to do it in. They all have their parts to play, but they still don't know what's in the celluloid canisters that they're supposed to be stealing. They they speculate. I think Andre says it might be gold and Steve shoots him down saying, no, that's not enough money because it's only like $35 an ounce or something like that right now. Margie suggests diamonds, but Steve says not in those kind of canisters. And then he finally hits on it. It would be heroin. So that's what they're going to steal. The interesting thing about the heist is twofold in that. So we have Margie on there being their inside man. Swanson shows up under the guise of uh, somebody reporting something wrong with the refrigeration. So that's how he's able to steal or sneak his electrical stuff in. Because his job is to basically control the power, turn off the lights, turn off the alarm system, something like that. And then with that distraction, Steve and Andre are able to sneak onto the boat and get down to where Margie has knocked out her boss. And that's where the the safe is. And so Andre has to detect where the state, this what panel the safe is hidden in and then cut hole in the paneling. And I'm just like, he had to be a master. You needed a master with tools in order to do this. You couldn't find just anyone with a stud finder and a saw. Okay. But they all get together. Swanson meets them in that room. 
And at, at one moment, because Swanson has to go to a different part of the ship in order to do the electrical work, Steve says, okay, we synchronize watches. So they actually synchronize watches. Fabulous. Anyway, so Swanson goes off to do his part, warning Steve that he needs to, to do his part because he's got to blow this safe in like eight minutes. And Steve at the beginning says that he's done stuff like this before for naval intelligence, but he said he would starve as a pro. So the pressure is definitely on. Now, the only spoiler I'm going to give you is that obviously, yeah, they do actually pull off this heist. And as much as I would like to spoil the ending of it, because there's a part of the final scene that is just so mind-boggling, it has nothing to do with the plot. That all comes together perfectly. But there is an aspect of the final scene of this episode that is just so mind-boggling. It truly has to be seen to be appreciated. Let's talk about the guest cast because we do have at least one familiar face. Gerald S. O'Laughlin is back as Carl Swanson and we talked about him in the box. Margie Carstairs is played by Antoinette Bauer. She was Fox Devlin on The Neon Riders. She was also on Stony Brook with Jack Lord. She also showed up in Wagon Train, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Thriller, Hawaiian Eye, Perry Mason, Twilight Zone, The Wild Wild West, The Fugitive, Invaders, Star Trek, Big Valley, Bonanza, Mannix, Get Smart, Mission Impossible, Ironside, Columbo, Search, Canon, Heart to Heart, and Murder, She Wrote. She showed up in the movies Super Beast, Die, Sister, Die, and Prom Night, and in the TV movies A Death of Innocence, See the Man Run, and First You Cry. She was also in the miniseries The Thornbirds. Andre was played by Than Wyan. He was Licenciado Pina on Zorro. He also showed up in Perry Mason, Hawaiian Eye, Twilight Zone, Wanted Dead or Alive, The Rifleman, Naked City, Route 66, Thriller, Leave it to Beaver, 77 Sunset Strip, Voyage to the Mount of the Sea, The Munsters, Big Valley, The Man from Uncle, The Invaders, The Virginian, Dragnet 1967, Night Gallery, Ironside, Emergency Cannon, Barnaby Jones, The Six Million Dollar Man, Quincy, Simon and Simon, and Newhart. He also turned up in the movies Splash, Black Sunday, the Frankenheimer one, not the Mario Barva one, and The Other Side of Midnight. He was in the TV movies Sullivan's Empire, Now You See It, Now You Don't, Ellery Queen, Don't Look Behind You, and The Two Lives of Carol Lettner. The Delivery Man was played by Ken Hiller. This is his only credit. John Warnash was played by Eddie Dew. We already saw him in Ways of Love. Frank Wayne was played by Robert Ericarte. This was his only credit. The Watch Officer was played by Joseph Kep Kuhau. This is his only credit. And Brad Warren was played by Milton Hibden. We saw him before in Strangers in Our Own Land. Now, we've already talked about the director, Seymour Robbie. Our writer, Meyer Delinsky. This is his first of six episodes for Hawaii Five-O. He also wrote an episode of Stony Brook with Jack Lord, as well as four episodes of Lock Up, three episodes of The Outer Limits, five episodes of Mr. Novak, three episodes of The Farmer's Daughter, four episodes of Dr. Kildare, and five episodes of Canon. He also wrote the Plato's Stepchildren episode of Star Trek. In addition, he wrote the movies Hot Rod Rumble, As Young As We Are, and Fifth Floor. He has the screenplay and story by credits on those. And he did the teleplay for the TV movies The Manhunter and SST Death Flight. 
And that is six kilos. Another solid episode. I think it's a fun one simply because I do so love Steve undercover, especially in this episode because of that just gorgeous flamboyant wardrobe he has going on. Absolutely beautiful. Plus, you get the bonus of the chemistry between him and Gerald S. Laughlin's Swanson going back and forth, needling each other. Is quite fun. Margie Carstairs is also kind of a fun character. Not quite the femme fatale you're expecting, but you get a good one in her. She also has some great fashion choices. So yes, this is one not to miss. If not for the fun plot and the origin story of Swanson, you get a great fashion show out of it. What's your name, genius? Swanson. You got a big mouth, Swanson, you know that? Hey, I'll remember you said that. And so concludes episode 12 of Bookum Dano. Once again, we got two solid episodes that aren't too heavy. They make for nice, quick watches. And you get to enjoy some excellent fashion. How can you complain? Thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate everybody who gives the show a listen. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that at kikiwritesabout.com. That is the home of Bookum Dano. But if you would prefer to experience me in real time, you can do that on Twitter at kikiwrites. We are almost finished with season one. The next episode of the podcast will feature the last episode of the first season of Hawaii Five O. I hope you're savoring it as much as I am. So keep those issues of Peace Magazine close and your Aloha shirts even closer. Until next time, Aloha!